Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 199 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen. This week on the podcast, I had a wonderful conversation with a landscape photographer living in Vancouver, British Columbia, Anna Morgan. Anna grew up in the United Kingdom, but later relocated to Vancouver to practice veterinary medicine. She recently sold her vet practice to pursue a master's degree and start a family. Through her master's degree, she decided to write her thesis on quite a fascinating topic, the role of photography and the photographer in conservation. The frameworks by which Anna used to frame her thesis have far-reaching application to understanding photographers, photography, and how we can think about each from varied perspectives. Anna was gracious enough to send me a copy of her thesis, which I read prior to our conversation. In addition to these topics, Anna and I discuss content-driven themes, including truth, experience, and beauty, and how these themes interplay with situated knowledge, including emotions, interests, meanings, attitudes, beliefs, and values, how misrepresentation of truth in photography could hinder conservation efforts, the importance of representation of women in photography and art, and how Anna's thesis has helped me to understand and conceptualize how and why various photographers present their artwork the way they do in regards to digital manipulation, you know, my favorite topic. Over on Patreon this week, Anna and I discussed the practice of slow and contemplative photography and how it connects curiosity, creativity, and care for the environment. Okay, let's get to the show. All right. Anna Morgan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Matt. I think we've been talking about this for a couple of years now, so it's good to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. I was super excited to have you join me for the the panel we did uh, for Women in Landscape Photography, which I felt like was a really fun conversation. And I'm really glad that we could finally just sit down and do this one-on-one because I think you have a lot to offer. Absolutely. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, so... Uh, before we dive into the the nitty gritty of what we're going to talk about today, which is going to cover a lot of ground, I think it would be awesome for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into photography. Yeah, of course. So um, I'm British. Um, I grew up in the UK, and um, I'm I worked as a vet in small animal practice for a number of years um, before moving to Canada. Um, and starting a, a family. So I've got a one-year-old and a three-year-old um, just now. Um, I got into photography really in high school when I took history of art and um, I come from quite an artistic um, family on my mum's side. So um, I've always had photography um, as as a hobby. And then um, when I went through college, I it kind of got put to one side for a little bit. And then once I was in practice, I, I really started picking up the camera a lot more and we started traveling a lot more. Um, and, and that really became, um, you know, something that I spent more and more time dedicating myself to. Um, and over time, you know, my approach to photography has changed a little bit, but um, that's how it all started. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you sold your, your vet clinic and to pursue a master's degree is that right yeah pretty much so um yeah I sold the vet clinic um just before a month or so before my son was born and um that same year I started um a master's in conservation medicine which 
for those people that have never heard of it and that's it tends to be a lot of people um, <laughs> um it's basically the study of health and disease at the intersect of human animal and ecological health okay okay um i mean i'm sure we'll dive into some of this but uh have you found that uh i guess thinking you know chick what came first the chicken or the egg were you interested in that stuff first or photography or like what's the interplay between your interest in conservation and and your and photography like where do those intersect yeah that's a that's an interesting question i think um one of my motivating factors for for studying to be a vet in the first place was my interest in um in nature generally and animals and conservation and I guess um, for a period of time, I just, um, I guess, got pulled along by the current, which, you know, you just move into practice as the kind of default um, job after you qualify. But I've always had an interest in conservation and and in nature. And, you know, all through my life, I've been a very outdoor person. So um, so it all um, kind of aligns in that way. Mm -hmm. Well, that's awesome. So I had the privilege of reading your master's thesis <laughs> which you sent me I, and i gotta tell you first of all it's very impressive and uh i how many pages was it like a hundred and it's a lot it was long yeah <laughs> and um, the the interview recordings um the transcriptions of those were were an additional sort of 80 pages each or so so oh my gosh yeah <laughs> Yeah, so let's uh let's just dive right into that because maybe first just tell us, you know, what was your thesis, what was it about? And then I'd love to hear kind of what sparked you to take that particular subject on as something you wanted to devote your thesis on. Yeah, so um the the master's course was done over a three year period and um the first two years are, are a taught program. When it came to the thesis side of it, I, um, I'd mentioned in one of my earlier programs, um, to my supervisor that, um, that I had had an interest in photography. And he said to me, well, if that's what really interests you, why don't you look at, um, incorporating that into your, um, dissertation? So we looked at various ways of potentially doing that. And, um, I decided to look at the role of, um, the photographer in, in conservation, um, the role of photography and has been looked at in to a degree before, um, but but it's never been looked at from the perspective of the photographer themselves. Um, so I just found the whole concept quite interesting, and um, I like a good challenge. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So who did you end up interviewing for your for your thesis, and why did you uh, select those particular photographers? Yeah, so the the choice of photographers wasn't to create a representative sample of um, photographers, but um, really just to pick and choose um, photographers who, more from a logistical point of view, I was able to contact because a lot of um, conservation photographers are very busy traveling and um, difficult to get a hold of. So um, in the end... Um, I interviewed three photographers, um, Peter Cairns, who is um, a fellow of the, um, oh, 
ILCP, is that right? Yeah, of the International League of Conservation Photographers. And um, he he's based in Scotland. He does a lot of work on um, rewilding in Scotland, rewilding programs. Um, so he was very inspirational. And then I interviewed John Marriott, who's based in the Canadian Rockies. Um, and he's particularly interested in the... Well, at the moment in Canada, there's a lot of um, questions about welfare of animals who are trapped um, legally currently um, every year. So he's he's pretty involved in that. Um, and then I interviewed um, William Neal, who, um, for those of you who don't know, um, he was awarded the Ansel Adams Award, the Sierra Club's um, Ansel Adams Award Um I can't remember the year, but it, I think in the 1990s. So, um, so yeah, three very different photographers. And um, why did you choose those three? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, they, they all came about um, for very different reasons. So I, I think I contacted um, 10 or so photographers in total. Um, just really, um, it's really about getting the contact. So, Peter Cairns um, does a lot of work um, with the University of Edinburgh, where I was doing, where my master's was based. Um, oh, yeah, okay. so, so my supervisor was able to introduce me directly to him. Um, the story with um, William Neal was really interesting. I, I did a trip to Yosemite actually to meet my supervisor in person because um, one of the limitations of the master's degree is that it's all done online. So we happened to decide to meet up in Yosemite and he went for a, um, a walk the day before I arrived and um, bumped into a lady who offered us both a, a place to stay um, in El Portal just outside Yosemite. So when I arrived um, we went to we went to stay with this lady and her husband um, and and I noticed uh, I, I went to buy Bill Neal's um, not his latest book but his it was his latest book at the time and when I took it into the house one evening, um, Edward, the the guy, he said, oh, um, he used to be our neighbour. We know him very well. <laughs> so it was just pure serendipity. And um, that was a great introduction. So um, so that just came very naturally, very organically. And then um, John Marriott, um, I contacted him and he was interested in in helping out and um he came and did a talk in Vancouver so we so we met up um and um went from there really um I I did contact a number of other photographers I won't name them because that I don't think that's fair but um yeah who either weren't interested or didn't have the time and um sure. yeah Yeah so let's just dive right into kind of what what it is you were trying to figure out in terms of your thesis and what were some of the, I guess, themes or ways you kind of organized your findings? Yeah. So the, the overall um, aim of the thesis was to try to understand how photographers understand their own contributions to conservation. So what, how they see their purpose and their role within conservation. Um and it focused really on on their practices, what, how, and why they developed um, their practices of photography. Um, so there were two main parts to the thesis. There was a, a literature review, which was um, which was quite taxing actually, because 
um, you know, it's a it's a whole new subject for me, and it um, kind of intersected with a lot of other um, disciplines, um, academic disciplines, and um, a lot of the work to, that I read wasn't necessarily in academic papers. There were a lot of books and so on, so it, it took um, <laughs> quite a lot of effort and and time to sift through and work out what was relevant to me. Um, and then it was quite interesting also how, um, you know, I was writing this up um, really during the height of the pandemic and um, and and during the, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter um, right. sort of uprising. And that, that all really fed into my own thoughts as the as the project continued. Um, so, I mean, I'm sure we'll come back to that at some point. And then the second part of the research was the interviews. So they were, they were in-depth interviews. They were, you know, each around four hours long um, and each very different in their own ways. Um, and then from there, um, I transcribed all the interviews and then um, sort of coded them up and worked out what was relevant to the, to the research question. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so what were... What are some of the things that you organize? I think one of the things that I found really fascinating was kind of this idea around uh, content-driven themes. Tell us a little bit about about that. Yeah, so um, as as I sort of went through the the data, I um, as I said, you know, you go through it individually and you look at sentence by sentence and you kind of code them up and um, and and say right, this is relevant to. Um, so in, in my case, for example, beauty, um, and, and so on and so forth. And then I ended up with about 39 codes and then I, um, put those into, um, larger kind of concept content driven, um, themes. So from the content of the, of the data, um, I was able to come up with three different themes. So, and they were truth, beauty, and experience. And then the concept that really pulled it all together was where those three things intersected. Um, I found what we call situated knowledge, which um, I've borrowed from um, feminist theory. Um, but it's really the how photographers describe their knowledge in, in respect to the emotions, their interests, their beliefs, their values, meaning and their attitudes to, to nature. So yeah. that's where it all intersects. Yeah. So how does, how does the, how do those content driven themes and situated knowledge um, play a role in the photographer's role in conservation? Yeah. So um, what I found um, interviewing um, the three photographers was that their knowledge um, is very, very unique to them. So how, you derive your um, attitudes towards nature obviously depends on your experiences within nature and the emotions that that might, um, you know, evoke within you, um, the beliefs that you carry through your life. And that, that obviously comes from multiple um, influences throughout your life. So as, as the three photographers spoke about their personal um, paths, I realized that, um, the knowledge that they've derived over the years and continue to gain as they as they progress through their careers um, really is is very individual. 
And so our knowledge is, hence the term of that of that intersect is the knowledge is situated um, in in our um, in our beliefs and our and our values. Mm-hmm. I was curious, you know, when I was reading that, it kind of rang some bells for me because I felt like it was a really interesting way of thinking about uh, comparing and contrasting photographer by photographer along any number of spectrums, um, including, you know, their approaches to subject or, uh, you know, the places they like to photograph or the, the way they arrange certain compositional elements or how they process their photography or present it to the public. I feel like that situated knowledge is a really interesting way of kind of explaining why there's so much differentiation between uh among photographers yeah absolutely i mean it's that it's that subjectivity um point that you know our knowledge is subjective um and the way we um the way our practices of photography evolve you know whether that's in the choice of um framing or how we um curate images or how we distribute images um that's all very subjective and and totally situated in in our in our own um space and time Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting how this particular way of i don't know and analyzing uh photographers (laughs) Uh, you know i have a psychology background so any anytime i can uh apply a concept to thinking about how people behave is fun for me in a sick and perverted way, some people might think, but I don't know. I have a very curious interest in people and what motivates them and to do certain things. And so I found this particular way of kind of thinking about it to be very useful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, there's all of this came from the assumption that there's no kind of singular causal relationship between an individual photographer and their conservation intentions. And I guess that can apply to other, um, genres of photography as well um but it's my research really was researching the lived experiences of of a person so that that totally intersects with um with your background um because it's you know a study that is ontological um mm-hmm. yeah it's pretty fascinating yeah and it's um i think in some ways it kind of can help reveal um, a lot about individual photographers and what the intention is behind their imagery, whether or not they know it or not too, because as I was reading through it and reading through some of the vignettes you had produced in your thesis around, you know, some of the answers to the questions you posed to the interviewees, um, I found myself kind of asking myself some similar questions and I was kind of, it was kind of interesting to think about, well, yeah, those experiences that I've had or the beliefs that I have or the values that I have about nature or whatever, that does kind of play into why I'm um, driven to make certain photographs and why I'm, why I don't like other types of photography. Um, I think it was a really interesting way of kind of um, self-introspection, I guess you could say in terms of uh, thinking about myself. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of echoed, um interestingly doing this research um has kind of echoed my own um thoughts on photographic practices and how how I approach those things 
Um, but it was interesting, you know, as I did the interviews, sometimes, you know, there were there were some times where um, the photographers would be very clear about how they had derived their practices um, in particular circumstances. And then other times where, you know, just that the fact that we're talking about it, they were able to um, say, well, actually, you know, just thinking about this now, maybe, maybe this, um, maybe this happened for, for these reasons. And um, I think photography has that ability to, um, to help you understand things, um, to s- see how things connect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, across all kinds of domains, right? I mean, thinking about your own personal situation or, you know, why is it that I was, that I'm gravitated towards this subject, but not that subject? Why is it that I'm, uh, that I gravitate towards this style of post-processing versus that style of post-processing? I think the simple act of asking yourself those questions is a, a very, potentially very revealing and interesting uh, thing to try out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's um, an individual's um, interpretation of of beauty of nature, and you know, helping someone make sense of their own experiences within nature culture. Um, mm-hmm. You know how how do they see the world? What do they pay attention to? Um, what do they choose to share with others? Um, mm. Yeah, and why? And why? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, what were some of the uh some of the other findings that you had through your, the process of make, of doing your thesis? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there were so many potential um, avenues for, um, for research. Um, and it was difficult to, it was actually pretty difficult to, um, to kind of limit what, what I spoke about, but um, I looked um, quite a lot at, um, I mean, looking at those three themes, those content themes, the beauty, truth, and um, experience from from there, quite a lot came out, and specifically on the nature of truth and um, reality, and what we what we mean by that, and how we interpret um, truth and reality. So that that was a really big um, theme, um, and I'm just trying to. Um, think of how else to I mean essentially my um the 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 main finding that came out is that um we can use situated knowledge to um to look at one if we're talking about conservation issues um rather than using just one lens to look at a particular issue um in order to to get a better picture and to see I've called it seeing ecologically um, because it allows us to see the connections between um, different issues and why things arise in a certain way. Um, we really need to be able to see ecologically, so have photographers with um, different metaphorical lenses um, to look at a particular issue and um, and be able to have um, to sort of mediate meaning and knowledge from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the uh, the things I picked up on in there when I was reading through that I hadn't really put a ton of thought of in before was how it's, and I can't even remember how it came came across in your thesis, but the premise was that you know a lot of conservation work is focused around this idea that you know it's about preserving land and and 
and nature and animals and things of that nature. But uh, there's actually more to it than that in terms of what is like humans are part of the ecology that we live in on earth. Like even though we're not necessarily completely positive part of that ecology, we do have a, we are citizens in that ecology. And so what is the relationship between man and nature and nature and man that's that can be seen as positive. I don't know if that yeah. came out correctly, but I thought that was an interesting little piece of thing that I got out of that, that it wasn't all just about, you know, conservation photography doesn't necessarily have to be all about um, the bad things humans are doing to the environment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think, I think over time, and I guess the more urbanized the world becomes, the more we feel that we're a part of nature from nature rather than a part of nature um Mm -hmm. and i think that you know as as over the decades i think we've seen um sort of a a gap in for example our knowledge of where our food comes from um or or how that food is grown um and you know we've kind of lost that literacy of our understanding of of nature and ecology which um you know still prevails in a lot of um indigenous um philosophies so i think i think that you know people contribute um positively as well as negatively to our ecology and and it's just really coming to understand the ways in which that happens and the and the small ways in which we can contribute positively um because it's all just become so negative um, and it can be really demoralizing sometimes. Yeah. Especially if you're tuned in at all to things that are going on. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the things that I was really drawn to in your thesis, um, as we were talking about earlier, you know, these content driven themes, you know, the the intersection uh, between truth, experience and beauty, I think, those three variables encapsulate a great deal of what a lot of landscape photographers are trying to express through their images. Either I would, I would say maybe a fourth one could be like emotion or artistic expression, but I think those three things could potentially encapsulate some of that as well. And I, what I found interesting about that is each individual photographer um, may place more or less emphasis on those three uh, variables and that changes that changes their photography right yeah so you know and and we see that all the time in terms of you know the images that people are producing and entering into contests and things of that nature and i was just curious uh as you were doing your thesis what were some of kind of your aha moments or things that you recognized in terms of those those three variables and i'm particularly interested in the the variable of truth because i think that is one that you know this idea of real realism or realistic or or honesty in landscape photography is something that we hear a lot of from not only well from all people in landscape photography there's some people that think truth is subjective which is fine and there's other people that think that photography should be all about truth. So what were some of the things that you kind of come to recognize through your research? Yeah, so I mean, the 
truth i mean it's obviously a, a a huge huge topic and reading through the um literature when i did the literature review um was pretty interesting because um there was a lot of um research done particularly in the kind of postmodernist um era on truth in photography and and then um as i said earlier my the situated knowledge really draws on feminist theory which um looks at truth in science so um our concepts of truth um over over the years um particularly in um western culture um truth has kind of become synonymous with fact um mm-hmm. and um you know we we sort of derive our understanding of what is real or not real um true or 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 fake as the you know is the current word um, you know really and um, that's come through from a from a background in science where science has um has become our conceptual way of knowing the default way of knowing um and um that can be referred to as propositional knowing but then we have presentational knowing which is an alternate non-rational way of knowing where um and a way of communicating truth so it doesn't take away from um the reality but art literature story can be a way of coming to know truth by a non-rational form um so it's no longer about facts i mean all facts are simply data that require interpretation so um that interpretation depends on your um again going back to your beliefs and your values um how you interpret um truth really depends on all of that and it was particularly in the interview with um peter kens who as i said he does a lot of work in rewilding and and he he observed that you know, by ramming science down people's throats and saying, well, look, we've done like 500 studies of this and this points to this, um, it is the truth. Um, truth doesn't constitute meaning, so, um, and facts don't constitute meaning for a lot of people. Um, so understanding that and, um, and trying to understand where people derive their own truths from is, is quite important. And that doesn't necessarily mean we make stuff up as we go along. Um, but, um, you know, truth doesn't have to come from an objective angle. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, especially if you think about it in terms of uh, photography, right? Because what we choose to uh, put within the frame of our photograph changes the truth of what we're presenting. Like if if you're at a famous iconic location and there's trash all over the lake shore, but you decide to exclude that trash from your composition, that changes the uh, perceived truth of that scene, right? (laughs) Yeah, and that might be that the person, you know, the photographer taking that image perceives the truth at at the time. Um, But, I mean, one of the things that when I when I researched um, storytelling um, and one of the interesting things was that each of the three photographers I interviewed spoke about storytelling to quite a large degree and their interpretation of what a story meant um, 
was also quite individual to them. But um, when you're talking about story, the, the truth, the meaning that it has kind of is mediated between the storyteller and the story listener. And obviously right. photography that um, is between is between the photographer, the photograph and the viewer. And so meaning is is kind of malleable and dynamic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. I think we see that a lot in um in modern landscape photography uh the malleability of truth i guess you could say and um in terms of what people present to the public through their work and then how people perceive that work through the as the viewer and i think often at least in my experience where things get really messy and don't feel don't sit right with me is when there's a disconnect between the what's being presented and what and what the explanation of that presentation is through their captioning of their photograph or through how they talk about that photograph and then my experience of that photograph like for example if a photographer um presents an image of a mountain scene and there's this incredible these incredible clouds surrounding the mountain and this insane beam of light hitting the mountain at the perfect moment in time. And then uh, the way that they talk about it is how they absolutely love experiencing these types of moments in nature uh, and how they love it when all the elements come together at the right moment and create these magical, beautiful scenes. And then you come to find out later that all of those clouds were put in later in Photoshop. It's like, there's a huge disconnect there that kind of severs my relationship with the artwork uh, when it's presented in such a way that's not analogous with, with what the actual experience of the photographer was. Uh, And I think that's often where I get sidelined. Sorry, maybe that was like a little counseling session. (laughs) Yeah, I mean it's it's a really interesting and and huge topic, um, and it's really difficult to to be able to kind of understand what what the actual experience was of the photographer at the time of taking it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, perhaps they wanted to see that so deeply that 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 became part of their experience. I mean, you know, you, I don't think it's possible to interpret um, their exact experience, but I mean, I agree it's 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 disappointing when when one thing doesn't seem to marry up with another or when you know rather than um being true to their own experiences um photographers might choose to um you know share images that um where where they expect a viewer to react to it in a certain way mm-hmm. rather than being truthful to to themselves um mm-hmm. yeah yeah, totally. And I think the reason why that struck a chord with me is because what you were saying about the interplay between the the art creator or the f- photo creator and the and the person that's consuming or viewing that f- photograph. And I think often you hear the argument that well, the viewer should just be skeptical of what's being presented to them and therefore they won't have any expectation of it being something that was actually experienced by the photographer. 
And where I always fall as a, as a photographer myself is, you know, I, what connects me the most with those images is having experienced those types of things myself and the rare and purity of those events, the rareness and purity of those events coupled with kind of it triggering my own experiences and, and, and attitudes and beliefs and values and emotions. And when those, uh, when my emotions and attitudes, beliefs, and values are, I guess, um, tricked with, <laughs> like that's for me, that's where as the viewer, I'm like, ah, that does, that didn't feel right to me, you know? Um, but that's maybe we're digressing a little bit too much into this idea of truth and realism, but I think there is power in truth. Um, but it's also subjective as you were saying before. Yeah. There's a, um, a really nice quote that I came across, um, which gave me quite a lot of food for thought um, by Timothy Morton. Um, and I forget the title of the book, um, but it's a, it's um, a book that essentially intersects ecology and art. And he writes, art shows us how disturbingly ambiguous, ambiguous pretense is woven into aesthetic experience. Wonderment is based on the capacity to be deceived. The more we are okay with being lied to, the wiser we might become. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it certainly gave me a lot of food for thought. Um, and and I guess the, you know, the fact that um, all photographs are manipulated to an extent, um, whether you're talking about the kind of processing or the choice of lens or the the choice of location, the cho- you know, the, the choice that you took to go to a particular place at a certain time, um, mm-hmm. And there's all these, um, I don't think bias is quite the right word, but there's all these choices that are very situated and, and subjective. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm reminded of a part of your thesis where you're, I can't, I, th- I think it might've been John Marriott that you were talking to, um, or describing conversation you had with him, but it was essentially, around a photograph of a, of a polar bear that was uh, emaciated and the photograph was used um, by the ILCP or, or some conservation organization to kind of demonstrate the impacts of climate change on polar bears and how, you know, if we don't take action, uh, the polar bears are going to all look like this and they're going to die, which is probably accurate. And uh, that particular photograph, if I'm not mistaken, that wasn't actually what caused that particular polar bear to be emaciated. And so it was like they're presenting uh, just an image of an emaciated polar bear and then they're inferring that the cause was climate change. But in fact, that was really just what the photograph was used, the story that the photograph was used to tell, but it wasn't necessarily the objective truth of that photograph. And I thought that was a really interesting way of thinking about that concept and i was hoping you could maybe yeah. tell me a little bit more about that because i found that to be really fascinating yeah so that image um i think it was actually a still from a from a video um by hmm. paul nicklin okay uh-huh. so it was um a, a a photo or a video of a of an emaciated um polar bear and um really you know very much on its last legs and um, it was published by National Geographic um, with a caption, which I think, if I remember correctly, was 
um, this is what climate change looks like. Right. Um, anyway, there was uproar um, because, as you say, um, I th- you know, the, the chances of that particular bear um, uh, being emaciated as a direct cause of climate change, you know, firstly, could never be proven. And, and secondly, is, you know, a bear is far more likely to be dying of starvation or old age or disease. Um, so when I spoke to John Marriott about it, he said, well, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that kind of um, type of, of, of truth telling, because sometimes you have to tell a truth that isn't necessarily immediately obvious. So, I mean, when you going back to the um, kind of fact and truth, you know, you can you can argue easily that the polar bear, um, you know, the fact is it was potentially I actually don't know if they if they ever postmortem the bear or anything like that. So I, I don't know. But there were several um, reports from from scientists and and the um, caption was retracted by um, National Geographic. And I think Christina Mittermeier actually issued um, uh, some kind of, I don't know whether it was an apology as such, but um, an explanation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the point, um, when you start thinking about things ecologically um, and you start thinking about the effects of climate change, um, you know, these things are often insidious and um, not necessarily obvious to the to the naked eye. And I think sometimes that's potentially why um, climate change um, denying has been able to take such a big hold because it's it's not always um, obvious and the, and the facts don't necessarily um, like I say constitute the meaning. So that particular polar bear it may have died from disease, but you know disease prevalence rates increase when um, when a bear is subject subjected to um, you know less food. There's higher nutritional stress, um, higher reproductive stress on that particular individual. So yeah, you probably can't say it's a direct result of climate change, but I suspect that somewhere along the lines, um, that may be a factor. Um, right. And whether or not it's a factor in that individual bear, um, it's certainly a factor for the species. So right. I think what John Marriott was saying was, you know, I'm okay with um, that type of captioning um, because ultimately it's telling a truth of sorts. Right. Well, I think some of it is, uh, you know, as humans, we are wired to um, by this idea of heuristics, which is essentially kind of the simplification of thought, because it's it's served us very well in survival over the deck over the millennia in terms of making very quick decisions about what's safe, not safe. Um, and so we're just wired that way. Like it's served us very well, but it doesn't serve us very well in understanding complex uh, things that where there's multiple variables. And I think, I think the media and uh, news companies and journalists and uh, you know, commercials and po- po- politicians, they know that they've, they figured that out. And I mean, you see it all the time in political speeches where, you know, well, this is a direct result of the Republicans, or this is a direct result of the Democrats, or whatever. And and, and you know, and in truth, you know, there's about ni- ninety five other variables that played into the, whatever they're talking about. But people uh, 
tend not to want to, you know, understand the complexity. They want that simple answer because it's easy. Yeah, um, I think that probably in part comes from um, the domination of science and in Western culture in particular, um, where, I mean, science is obviously reductionist and um, positivist. So it, it seeks to find a simple explanation um, to a particular answer. And, um, you know, science is important. I'm a scientist myself. But um, I think it's when you're talking about ecology, um, it's also important to see the connections um, and how one thing connects to another. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the deeper you go in your questioning um, and the, the, you know, the deeper you um, practice your curiosity, um, then then you come to find not just how things appear, but how the appearance comes to be. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, going back to this idea of truth, uh, one of one of the things that I thought was interesting in your thesis was this idea that uh, misrepresent misrepresentation of truth in photography could hinder conservation efforts. And I was curious if you you could uh, dive a little bit in into that. Yeah. So um, so um, I think it was. Um, Peter Cairns that um, talked about um, how truth is implicit in in photographs. So we often right. <laughs> assume truth um, in photographs, and that's. I mean, there's a long um, history of um, photography critics who kind of sit on both sides of that um, fence, so to speak, about um, about whether we should assume truth or not in in photographs um so i mean he um he said um so i I can i can quote um photography no longer represents what it historically represented which was the truth um we could argue even back then that it wasn't the truth because there wasn't there was the equivalent of photoshop it was always manipulated contrived call it managed shall we say so um and and then he goes on to say at a later point, so um, do you take it as a piece of art, a piece of aesthetic entertainment, or do you translate it as reality? And um, I guess what he's doing here is really sharing um, a kind of subliminal fear that um, photographs could be misread by viewers. Mm. Um, and if um, truth is misrepresented, um, then that could... Um, hinder conservation efforts as much as it could um aid conservation efforts depending on what it is that's being misrepresented right yeah i mean this idea of misrepresent misrepresentation of truth is has plagued photography for a long time i know there's a very well-known photograph i think it was all the way back from like world war one or something like that where it was pretty it's pretty well known that it was kind of staged in terms of like how it was presented in terms of, you know, like if, you know, in nature, if you take a bunch of leaves and you stage them in a certain way and then take a picture of it to make it look really neat, the same kind of thing happened. And I think there's a very well-known photograph of Dorothy Lang's where she was photographing a woman and her kids in poverty and, you know, how she arranged those elements um, how she, you know, what facial expressions they had, you know, what, what she told them to do in the photograph. 
that changes our interpretation of what she's photographing. Um, so I think truth in photography is, I will say it's kind of a misnomer, but I think there is an opportunity as the photographer to kind of dispel some of that in terms of how we talk about our work or, um, or how, you know, how, how we present that work to the public. I think that's where often photography gets a bad rap. Like you have people like Peter Lick who post these ridiculous photos of a giant photoshopped moon with this tree. And then he, he tells this outlandish story about how that particular scene has eluded him for decades, blah, blah, blah. Or really he just created it in Photoshop. Like it's just, it's just nonsense. Right. And like when people come to learn of the actual truth, it diminishes their trust in the work that gets presented by photographers. Yeah. I mean, I guess, um, I guess my personal preference is to consider meaning over truth. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a really difficult one because we don't always know how, how viewers are going to react to certain images, but I think art on the whole, you know, unlike science, which um, seeks to answer a question um, for me, art is all about, asking a question um, mm -hmm. so by captioning um in a particular way you're obviously rather than um leaving that piece of art open for the viewer to ask a question and to consider you're kind of closing down the um the ability of that image to to open up those questions i don't know if that mm -hmm. makes any sense it absolutely makes sense. I mean, it's it's oftentimes why I question my own photography as art. Like, and I, you know, people are going to agree or disagree or whatever, but like I often look at my photos and I'm like, you know, maybe I was trying to personally express something and that makes it art. But, but oftentimes I'm like, I really just thought it was a beautiful scene and I wanted to capture that moment and present it in a pleasing way. I don't, like, if that's art, that's great. Um, but like to your point, what question am I asking? Um, maybe maybe I wasn't intentionally asking a question, uh, but I think I think this idea of art is over overused in landscape photography, especially. I think you know when you ask people, um, well, why did you take a fourteen millimeter foreground and combine it with a seventy five millimeter background of a mountain and warp the mountain to make it look bigger? And then, you know, focus stack the entire scene so every single thing is sharp. And then combine the light from an epic sunset and the light at sunset and the light from an hour before sunset and make this, like, absolutely perfect rendition of a scene that is not experienceable at all. You know, what question is that particular, quote-unquote, artist trying to ask, right? I don't think they're asking anything. They're just... In my opinion, they're just trying to get people to like the photo more, you know, like they want people to think it looks better than it actually does in real life. <laughs> yeah. And, and shots fired, I know, but that's <laughs> uh, I mean to your point, like what question is being asked by combining all of those elements in that way? Yeah, I mean I don't know, um I you know, I can't speak to what other photographers' motivations are. Um and sure I, I agree with you. Um, I 
I personally don't enjoy those kind of images. They don't, they don't do anything for me. Um, but at the same time, you know, perhaps that individual photographer is asking themselves the question, you know, what, what does this mean to me? I, I don't know. Um, I guess the questions can come from all sorts of angles. Um, and does, does it make, you know, although it doesn't stimulate an emotional response in me, those, those type of images, um, does it make them any less meaningful to the photographer who took them? And, um, you know, can we, can we as viewers, can we really judge the motivations of someone else in producing a particular style of image? I I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, that's hundred percent fair. I mean, giving people the benefit of the doubt. I know I've spoken with some people that like to do that type of stuff. And, you know, a lot of times they say that they do that because it's um, it's their way of creating something. And that creative act is how they're coping with uh, mental illness or whatever. And I think that's great. And that's wonderful. I just, I think sometimes the word art just gets thrown around a lot in terms of motivation um, yeah, I agree. Well, I wanted to create art. <laughs> I think, um, you know, when you, I guess you, there are people that say, you know, there's art with a capital A and art with a lowercase a because, you know, not all art is art. Um, and I, I don't know that I know enough about um, the the process of what constitutes art to to comment too much deeper, but. Um, but I, I definitely think there is, you know, um, there's there's the type of art that you see in um, galleries and exhibitions and museums and so on, and there's the type of art that's kind of more popular. Um, mm-hmm. But the, you know, I think it's important to remember that the art that you see in, you know, museum exhibits or gallery exhibits is also curated, and um, and there's a certain um, aesthetic and reason for that being exhibited as well over somebody else's images and you know that's I think there's an element of exclusion there too Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so it's a pretty big topic as you know when I started reading um doing my research for the literature review I it it was a minefield um because there's (laughs) on it really um and you could go in so many directions with it as well. Oh, totally. I mean, I don't think there's consensus by any means, especially when it comes to uh, truth and photography. And, and I don't mean to disparage that type of photography. I think like you, it doesn't really do anything for me. But I think the reason why it doesn't do anything for me is because I'm a photographer who has been to those places and experienced those moments. And when I see things presented in a way that um, cannot be experienced. It it just, um, going back to this whole idea of situated knowledge, it grates against my values and attitudes and emotions and beliefs that are important to me. But in fairness to those photographers, perhaps those values and emotions and attitudes are not important to them, and that's okay. But also, it being art, it's also okay that other people might not like it and that's okay too and it's okay that some people love it that's great yeah and I mean do you feel that potentially um when you see this these um types of images and you think about your own experiences do you feel in some way that maybe it takes a they take away from your own experiences 
Yeah, you know, I've had so many conversations about this with friends, photographers. You know, it's, I don't know that it takes away from my personal experiences. I think what it does is it kind of, um, it ubiquitizes. I know, I think I just made that word up. Um, (laughs) But, you know, when something is ubiquitous, it means it's everywhere. Like it, you know, it's easy to find. And I think what it does is it ubiquitizes um, incredibly special moments that are very rare and therefore diminishes the actual experiences that are real, that are beautiful and wonderful. And it, um, for me, it's almost like, it's almost like the inflation of beauty. Like, well, if everything's beautiful, then nothing's beautiful anymore. Right. And so I guess for me, it kind of just diminishes this idea that those special moments are special for a reason because they don't happen very often. And when you fabricate them through digitization, it, um, kind of cheapens the actual moments that were special but that's me yeah I mean um I I know where you're coming from and I guess the direction of my own photography has gone into and, and this in part is from having a young family and not being able to get to those places sure um, for those types of moments um but I guess um my experiences in the local environment and you know in fairly mundane locations can um can be just as meaningful and and special and in, you know invoke a certain set of emotions absolutely but i'm i'm curious um if you don't mind me asking a question then on you know if if photography can do that um and ubiquitizes how um what's the influence of um, paintings? Because essentially paintings are created from, um, you, you know, their interpretations of, of scenes. Uh, mm-hmm. And those interpretations, which also include, you know, um, variety of colour and form and, and so on, do they, do they also have the same effect? So um, no, I think, you know, there's, there's two things there that, I would say, first of all, this isn't going to be a popular opinion, but I I, I personally think that um, incredibly talented painters um, are on a whole other level of artistic expression than photographers. Um, and I only say that because I feel like uh, deriving, you know, being able to create something out of nothing with a paintbrush and a canvas is a takes a whole different set of skills and uh, artistic expression than um, expressing what you actually find in nature. Um, Not to say that one's better than the other. I just find painting to be just a whole other level. And then second of all, I think uh, landscape and nature photography, especially, I think what makes it uh, an art form to be celebrated in its own right which has been questioned ever since its inception is the idea that it's somehow um, derived from reality or the presentation of something that actually exists or existed or an experience that actually happened. And then doing it in such a way that evokes emotional response or uh, presents an emotional reaction uh, from the photographer. And I think that's, that is what makes uh, photography uh, special and um, challenging and 
to your point, being able to go into mundane conditions in a mundane location and being able to personally express something from things that you find in that location and doing it in a way that presents something that tells a story or uh, opens a dialogue or uh, expresses something in yourself as a photographer to your viewer. Uh, I find that to be exceptionally interesting and one of the most powerful things about landscape and nature photography. And I, um, and again, you know, people that composite and, you know, paint in different aspects of different scenes into making the final product. I'm not suggesting that that's not artistic. I'm just suggesting that those are two very different art forms. And one, hmm, uh, I'm having a hard time articulating this, even though I've had these conversations so many times. It, I just feel like doing it in that way is like a different playing field. It's like if you're playing the game of football and we're talking American football, because <laughs> that's what I know. And like all of a sudden one team figures out that if you uh, wear your shoulder pads in a certain way, you can run like 10 miles an hour faster, but like nobody else knows that. It, it's not the same game anymore. Like that, that team has an advantage, and I'm, and of course now I'm in now I'm interjecting the idea of competition <laughs> into art, which is a whole other conversation. But I just feel like it's not, they're not this. It's not the same art form at that point. Is when when it's really what I'm trying to articulate. No, I mean it's it's an. In, I mean I I have to admit I don't know I don't know that I have a super strong opinion on whether or not it's a different art form, but I, I do think it's really difficult to draw a line into what um, what constitutes a composite and what is not. So, sure, um, like, you know, multiple exposures are, okay, they're done in camera, but, um, it, yeah, they, they could be also considered a different art form and I kind of feel that, it can potentially create like a false binary of um, of of different types of photography, which is potentially put there. I mean, if we're talking about competitions, then it's put there for the purpose of a competition and not necessarily for the purpose of enjoying photographic images or art, if you want to go as far as calling it art. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it kind of goes back to this uh, this idea of, if you were to ask a photographer, you know, why, why did you go to those lengths to kind of make this image a more perfect version of what is actually possible to see, experience, and photograph? And oftentimes, I mean, I think I can, not to put words in people's mouths, but like it's so that their images stand out from the crowd and so that they can win competitions and so that uh, when they do present it to the public, it gets accolades and it feeds their ego. And I don't know, that's not everyone. I know there's probably people listening that do that and the, they might say, no, I don't do it for those reasons at all. That's probably fair too. But I think on the whole, you know, we started seeing these types of images um, appear much, much more frequently uh with the advent of social media. I mean, it really wasn't until then that these were very uh, popular in terms of people creating them. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know. 
<laughs> we could go on for, um, for quite some time on this topic, I think. I think so. I just, I mean, to, to your credit, uh, your your research and your thesis just really made me contemplate a lot of these questions because, um, and I don't necessarily want to, I don't mean to say that my perspective is the correct one. It's just my perspective. Um, and it's, you know, it's based um, which this is what I loved about your research. It's based on my situated knowledge, right? Yeah. Like, like I place a very high value on truth and experience over uh, beauty. I think, I think there's an overemphasis of beauty in, in landscape photography. I think that's why I like some of the work of photographers that can make interesting images out of things that aren't necessarily thought of as beautiful uh, on their own. And they're able to present them in a way that, is beautiful. I think that's an interesting, I guess it's to me, it's like, what do I value as a photographer and as a viewer of photography? I value knowing that what I'm looking at was something that actually happened. Um, but that's because I place a very high value on those experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And it's exactly as you said, and that's why the situated knowledge um, worked so well for, for me in, in my thesis. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I I I recognize that I ha- having done the thesis, I recognize that I place quite a high value on beauty. Um, but perhaps my interpretation of what beauty is would differ considerably from somebody else's interpretation. So, and I'm I'm not talking specifically about the aesthetics on their own, but more about um I mean, once you start delving into um philosophy, it becomes all um you know a, a, another level of um you know beauty and and goodness and connection um and how that that's all uh, how they all intersect um or are the same and and then you can start talking about spirituality and it kind of leads you down this um rabbit hole of you know what what does it really mean um and and that again just comes down to the individual's interpretation of what what beauty is um and i guess that photographers who um who create these um composite um you know that they potentially have a have an understanding of beauty that that fits um their values and beliefs and um whilst i personally don't enjoy the aesthetic um i don't see anything um you know i don't have any i don't see anything wrong with them creating it and I and I mm-hmm. personally don't see them having an unfair advantage in competitions or even on social media because ultimately um the viewer can decide for themselves whether um they enjoy the image or not sure I think what it really uh, comes down to is on the uh viewer um and what the value that each viewer places in different aspects of of the art right mm-hmm. uh, like i'm sure that there are similar arguments that can be had in different other creative endeavors like painting or music where some p- people that listen to music they want to know that it was acoustic or, or not created with electronic equipment maybe that's valuable to them as the listener because that's what they for some reason like and maybe they don't even have to explain why like but i think as art people that enjoy art and also people that create art, I think we should be okay with this idea that 
there are some people that place a high value on truth and experience and want to know that the photography that they're looking at is derived from truth and experience, whatever that might be and how you define that. And I think that's where the that's where the interesting delineation comes is, you know, to your point, some people don't care. Like you say, you don't necessarily care. Like they should be able to do that. I agree. They should be able to do that. I don't care uh, that they do that. But uh, I think as the viewer, I place a higher value on knowing that it was something that actually happened. <laughs> and without there being, and then in regards to competitions, without there being a rule that says that it's derived in such a way, then I can't, as the viewer, I have no way of knowing whether or not it was, and therefore it's difficult for me to enjoy it in the same way that I like to enjoy it. But that's just me. Uh, and I know I'm not alone. I, I think, you no, know, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of photographers out there that when they look at the results of competitions, they're incredibly frustrated by what wins because of because of what they value as a photographer. Yeah, agreed. Um, I mean, I don't know whether it says more about the judges of the competitions um, as to, you know, their aesthetic preferences mm-hmm. or their knowledge of um, photography kind of more broadly. I, I, I don't know. Um, or whether it's more about, um, you know, social trends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, it's difficult to unpick all the kind of varying threads that that kind of weave together. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, it's it's an interesting thing to think about because when you when you talk in big big picture terms like art or creativity, um, and then you and then you say, okay, any any photography under the sun, we're just going to call it art, and doesn't matter what the end result as long as the end result is pleasing, then great. And I have no, I have nothing against that. Uh, but uh, as a landscape photographer who values different things more than others, I'm looking for certain things in the photography that I that I personally like to view, um, knowing that it was derived from an actual experience. To me, that is important. For other people, zero importance whatsoever, and that's totally fine too. Um, but it, it's hard to know that um, when people are not being honest in the way that they portray their subjects or talk about their subjects. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, geez, I think we've beat that horse to death a little bit. Um, and I know that's probably the whole theme of my podcast lately, but uh, I don't know, comes up a lot. And it's it's not necessarily like I want to say that I'm right or in, and people that are, think differently than me are wrong. I just want to say like there's people like me that this is what we value. And it's cool that you value what you value, but we value this. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, the 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 point of listening to other people's perspectives um and and trying to understand from other people's perspectives is is the most interesting part of, of life really. Um, you know, and coming together and not just um not just listening and understanding, but valuing somebody else's perspective um, mm-hmm. alongside your own. Um, and agreeing that you know it's just as valuable, even even whether you agree or, or don't. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I know we touched on it quite a bit in 
the other episode that you were on. Um, but I, I thought it would be worth um, having a dialogue around uh, the importance um, of representation of women in photography and art and potentially the role that women can play in addressing the climate crisis and other environmental issues. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about that from your perspective. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things I remember saying in the um, in the panel episode was, was about being able to value women's um, perspectives. And obviously we were talking specifically about landscape photography. And um, I think, you know, we, we live in a, in a culture that has been, um, you know, we've, we've seen it over the past year with everything that's unraveled um, in terms of um, the Black Lives Matter movement. um, And, I mean, events even in the last couple of days. Um, so, um, I think what I would, what I'd like to see going forward is that um, women in in photography, whether that's conservation photography or landscape photography, um, are really valued for what they what they're able to bring to the table that might be different. Um, I think women generally. And obviously, there are exceptions on um, within both men and women, but um, by and large, women bring a kind of nurturing, um, softer approach. Whether that translates into photographic style or not, I I don't know necessarily. But but certainly, um, how they how we experience the world um, will will differ from from that perspective. Um, and there's, there's quite a lot of work um, being done at the intersect of um, gender and climate change. Um, there's just been a, a really, I haven't been able to read it yet, but there's a there's a um, great book that's just been published called um, All We Can Save um, by a group of really prominent um, female climate, uh, they come from different backgrounds, so some are scientists, some are artists, poets, um, activists, so on. Um, so I think that women... Um, play a really important role in in climate change awareness and um, in the way we think about the future generations, um, our own children, um, what climate change means to us. Um, And yeah, I mean, I'd like to see um, women amongst other groups as I, I, you know, I feel very strongly that um, there's a a big exclusion of um, black and indigenous perspectives in photography too mm-hmm. so it would be nice to see more of that and, and not just see it but actively um bring it to the fore really yeah it's it's interesting because some of that i've I, I believe is kind of you know chicken and the egg in some ways because um i think part of the problem is that we're not seeing a lot of that photography because a lot of that photography doesn't necessarily exist because that photography, uh, you know, photography typically is a, you know, you have to have some financial means in order to engage in it typically, or, you know, in the Western world cultures, we typically spend a lot less of our time thinking about survival and, you know, trying to make ends meet and can actually have a luxury of engaging in creative arts and things of that nature. Whereas people that are perhaps living in indigenous situations are maybe more focused on 
surviving day to day. Um, so it's, you know, how do we eliminate some of those barriers for those people to be able to engage in the creative arts so that we can appreciate uh, what they create? Yeah, and really it's about doing something active rather than just assuming somebody else is going to come and do it for us. Um, <laughs> when I when I did the thesis, I looked at the um, representation of um, the International League of Conservation Photographers. So the ILCP, um, I can't remember now, has, um, I have it written down somewhere, 107, I think, fellows and um uh, of of the ILCP and um of those um something like so it's it's dominated by white, white male photographers from the global north and less than 20% are women um less than 10% come from the global south there's no black or indigenous representation that i can see um uh, i stand to be corrected on that but i've sort of gone through all the all the members and i, I can't see um from their biographies that anything um you know in their in their um ancestry for example um we but you know at the same time we know that environmental injustices disproportionately affect the global south black and indigenous communities migrants women um not just through health risks but also through non-equitable legislation and policy so i think really um you know it's up to people to actively promote the voices of of groups of people allow um you know improve access to um to be able to not just take photographs but to um to have them seen um and and really like i say just um magnify their their voices so i i'd like to see that happen not just in conservation but in um landscape photography also yeah, th- that was something I found interesting from your thesis was the kind of the the steep uh, barrier of entry for ILCP fellows in terms of the amount of time required to dedicate to the cause in order to um, be a member or a fellow. And I haven't done a lot of research on on that, but it seemed to me that unless you were willing to like wholly dedicate your entire life to ILCP, you your you weren't able to contribute to them in any meaningful way as a photographer, but I could be wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think it's exceptionally difficult to, to join there. There are so many hurdles to jump through so much prior experience that you have to have, which obviously to an extent requires a a level of privilege. um, Right. Many people don't have access to. So, um, but um, you know, as a, as an alternative, something like Nature First has, um, you know, f- free membership. Um, and although that doesn't necessarily give you access to camera equipment and so on, I think it's a really good start um, to promote um, conservation ideals. But I think it's important that those conservation ideals don't solely come from westernised perspectives of, of what conservation actually means. Mm. Um, and so when we talk about sustainability, um, we can talk about, you know, reciprocity with the land and um, philosophies that really have come from um, a lot of indigenous teachings. Um, so it'd be nice to see some of those philosophies um, become more prominent within 
organizations such as the ILCP. Um, I mean, they've certainly become more prominent in organizations like the UN, um, where representation is a lot more equitable. So it's possible. Um, it just takes some doing. <laughs> sure. No, that makes sense. And uh, it's a... Uh... It's not an easy hurdle to get over because, I mean, you think about uh, conservation issues, especially in countries where there's higher, you know, percentage of poverty. Oftentimes, uh, the activities that the population is engaging in that could be seen as uh, destructive to the environment, well, really, that's just their way of surviving based on the global economy and the realities that they face as a people. Um, and so a lot of it is systemic in nature too, that I think people are often quick to overlook that it's, it's not just because people are hate planet earth. It's no, they're just, these are just people like us trying to survive. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think um, there's definitely an awareness um, to be understood. It, it, it's precisely the global systems that are in place, but it's it's dominated by um, uh, you know colonialist um, mentalities that are patriarchal and um, capitalist in nature. And I think um, if we can go part way to dismantling those kind of systems um, and reinventing them um, by using by incorporating other voices, um, then I think we will have a much more equitable um global playing field but um i mean how we exactly achieve that i i don't have the answers um but i think there's a lot of unlearning and relearning to do well and i think just in general i mean even people that are highly educated and well-intended um are probably unaware of you know, some of the going ons behind the scene in terms of the people that are truly in power and we're talking you know, the 1% that basically, you know, you hear about spreading democracy to Venezuela and, you know, eliminating socialism. That That's all just a, a screen for uh, corporate global corporate interests that want to um, have access to Venezuela's natural resources. Um, and they want to privatize uh, all of that so that it doesn't, you know, it's not being exploited by the Venezuelan people, it's exploited by the global elites that have the most to gain. Um, but it's done so; it's done in a in the name of demo, in the, the name of democracy and freedom. Um, there's actually an excellent podcast that I listen to um, where she basically spends all day watching CNN or not CNN. Sorry, uh, she watches uh, C-SPAN and reads all the legislation and kind of connects all the dots and kind of presents what she discovers in terms of like who's involved, you know, what is really going on behind the scenes in Congress. Um, it's fascinating. It's called Congressional Dish, if you're interested. Uh, but there's a, some great episodes that she does where she kind of uncovers some of that, and it was really eye-opening for me. And I feel like I'm fairly well-informed, so it was interesting. Yeah, 100%. And I think um, going back to photography and... <laughs> right, like... <laughs> Was that what we're talking about, photography? I'm, I'm building a connection here. Um, no, but I think I think photography has an ability to, um, as a tool to kind of deepen our curiosity. And, um, you know, particularly when we're talking about nature and, um, you know, as you're, as you're going around taking 
images and thinking about things I think we can um you know a little bit um like meditation techniques you can it can it can help um develop curiosity and the ability to ask deeper questions and deeper questions and deeper questions and um as I said not just look at the appearance of things so the ideal as you say of um spreading democracy but the how that appearance actually comes to be um and and what that means in terms of global elites and so on so um yeah right and i feel like you could take the same approach to um <laughs> like what we were talking about earlier around truth and experience and beauty and situated knowledge which is what you've done so well in your thesis is you know asking those deeper questions as to what motivates people and you know how they arrived at their kind of what their approaches are to photography and why that was the direction they took it versus another, I think. And then asking why to that question or to the answer to that question, I think that's where things get very interesting, but often people don't want to take that time to be that curious too, or don't perhaps don't have the time, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it, and it does take time. Um, it, you know, to think deeply is not, I mean, it's not a skill you develop quickly, but and and just the thinking itself takes, um, you know, a lot of time and effort. For sure. All right. Well, maybe that's a good time for us to talk about who you would like to see here on the podcast. Who do you recommend? Yeah. So, um, in the interest of um, sticking with um, supporting women in photography. Um, there's a few a few names I'd like to mention. So, um, Joe Stephen, um, and Lizzie Shepherd, and Melanie Colley. They're all um, female photographers um, based in the UK. Um, they all have quite different styles, but I've, I personally find them very inspiring. And um, and then the, the fourth person I'd like to um, suggest is um, somebody I've um, I started following. Um, early in the year um, on Instagram her name I don't know her, her last name her first name is um, Teresa and she goes by the um, Instagram handle switchback shorty and she's a, um, a black lady um, photographer who promotes um, equity in outdoors um, outdoor recreation um, because that's another aspect of um, exclusion um, and um, I think she, along with some of her, um, some similar um, people are, are going some way to kind of um, expose that. So um, she could be an interesting person to talk to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome, Anna. This is a lot of fun. Hopefully we didn't, well, mostly me, uh, didn't make people tune out too early. But uh, <laughs> I appreciate you uh uh, sharing your thesis with me and then uh, providing us with this opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, thanks very much, Matt, for, for making it happen. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks to Anna for joining me on the podcast and for your gracious patience with my trains of thought as it related to your research and my own personal belief systems in photography. I found our conversation to be highly engaging and it was it really challenged my own thinking on a variety of topics. Bravo to you. Well, thanks to our newest patron on Patreon, Anton Gorlin. Anton is supporting the podcast in a huge way. 
Thank you so much for joining over 140 of your excellent peers in supporting and sustaining the podcast. I try hard to keep the podcast ad-free, and my hope is that listeners who find value in the conversations will pay me what they think is fair over on Patreon or via PayPal on my website. Really, anything more than zero seems fair to me. If you're not in a financial situation to do that at this time, I totally get that. Maybe there's something else you can help with. Reach out and let me know. Well, cheers, my friends. Be sure to tune in next week for a very special episode 200 with Guy Tal and Michael Gordon. We will be discussing the history of landscape photography and its implications on the art form in today's environment. Also, I'm making a massive announcement next week that I can hardly contain myself in sharing. If you want a sneak peek, please be sure to check out the show notes for a link to stay updated on the project. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.